This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello, welcome to Talking Dirty episode 13 over Abby's Trust and Old Vicarage, accompanied by little yapping puppies, is Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and handsome horticulturalist festooned in ferns. I am I'm fern fronds, actually. <laughs> fern fronds. And here over, or there over in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. I see I can, say, I can even say it now without actually having to look on my paper, just have it written down. Although I do, just in case I get a mental block, but there we are. Well, there's a lot to remember. Joining us from West Norfolk is the culinary goddess, the woman behind Stratton's Hotel in Swatham. It's Vanessa Scott. Hello. Yeah, I haven't got any names to add to mine. It's very boring. Just Vanessa. So you just, you just got Vanessa? Vanessa, yeah. what, would, what would you choose if you could have two middle names? What would you choose? Um, oh, gosh, that's putting me on the spot, isn't it? Something's kind of almost silly. I don't know, but not anything normal, I don't <laughs> I mean, you could, you could have something very grand like Artemis. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, Artemis. Something like, something like that. Your, yeah. um, your deli is called Coco's, isn't it? So I can, I can see you as a Coco. Deli is called Coco's. A lot of people think it's the name of the cat, but it's not. The building that it was housed in originally belonged to the Co family, C-O-E. So it's just a play on words. Ah. And I thought it was Coco Chanel. I know. <laughs> well, the trouble is, Alan has got an E in, and you know jolly well Coco and Chanel didn't have an E in. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Vanessa, I know you've been incredibly busy because since lockdown restrictions eased, I believe your restaurant uh, and all the staff at it, including you as head chef, have been rushed off your feet. We have. It has been quite a phenomenon. I mean, obviously, we've had to make our restaurant smaller. We haven't been able to operate in the listed building because the ceilings are too low, so we haven't got the airflow. Uh, so everything is going on in our barn that we run the breakfast in, the cafe in, and the dinner in. And we've had to make each section last longer. So dinner starts at five o'clock in order to get through the people that we would have got through from seven till ten. So it's very strange, very strange times. But I have to say, people have come out you know, it's been overwhelming. We've been 100% occupancy. And I think it's because they feel safe in Norfolk, don't they? We've got wide open spaces, you're not on top of each other. Everybody's been sort of obeying all the rules and restrictions. It has been difficult, but it's been good. And it has brought out some great, the great sort of camaraderie and people's supportive side. So yeah, we, it's been good. And not hard work. You're somebody who's so inspired by seasonality um, and although you've been busy, I'm sure you've been reveling in lots of local ingredients as well and lots of local produce. Yeah, and of course we're right at the tail end of the tomatoes and I have, 
I have brought some tomatoes to the table because I lost my greenhouse um, the end of last year because I just, Alan, I ashamed to say I just wasn't doing enough in it and I was just using it to overwinter the geraniums. So Les said to me, why on earth don't you get rid of that? And so tomatoes are grown outside really for the first time in sort of as a mass crop. And I've been amazed at how many I've got. So um, sometimes a change is as good as, as a rest. To growing tomatoes outside, providing you've got a nice sheltered place. And if you can get yes. the, if you can get them sun's reflection from a warm wall or something like that is relatively easily. The one thing against growing them outside, of course, is tomato blight which is yeah. the same kind of fungus as potatoes get, which are related to tomatoes. And once you get that blight, I'm afraid that can be a devil, but you don't get that blight so much if you've got overhead covering. So if you grow no. your tomatoes against a wall, you're likely to get a rain shadow there, which won't um, affect your tomatoes too much with the blight, which is a good thing. Yeah, which is luckily what I've had. And obviously from sitting alongside you guys for so long, I have all that kind of knowledge. So I've thrown them in a courtyard. I've got the overhang. There's been heat that just gets absorbed on this south facing wall that the tomatoes are on. So I've been, they've been in the perfect, you know, scenario really. And we've had very little rainfall as well, haven't we? Yeah. So even if you've got sort of swirling driving rain or rain coming from another direction, luckily, abiding by those kinds of basic rules I've got a fantastic tomato crop this year so lots of things for tomatoes and as a chef what varieties do you find yourself going for time and again well I must admit I've had all sorts of tomatoes given me we we grow we actually buy from um, the greengrocer in the town Starlings local tomatoes from Anna's at Toftwood but I've also grown this little chap, Red Alert, which is a bush tomato, simply because, and the, these are the, the last that I have. I've grown those because um, I wanted to do a bush tomato and I had troughing off the floor so the dogs couldn't get to them because I too have an, a dog, well, a couple of dogs, but one is extremely naughty and does like digging plants up. <laughs> <laughs> so if any of the tomatoes drop before I pick them, she's always had them. But um, they are up off the ground. And um, yeah, Red Alert has been the one I've really enjoyed this year of all the ones I've grown. So yeah. You've reminded me, we used to have a Labrador when I lived with my parents. And we had a really, or I still have, a lovely sun-drenched sheltered corner right by their back door. And one year my mum grew really lovely sort of shrubby tomato plant there. No idea which variety, but very tasty. Took us ages to realise that our crop was being seriously depleted by the Labrador. That just every time she went in and out of the garden would just snaffle one or two cherry tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> We had a Labrador too at the hotel when we first arrived and she had a penchant for Victoria plums and she would go and pull them off the tree so she wasn't caught red-handed and go to another part of the garden to eat them. <laughs> it was really funny. I loved about tomatoes and I've been having tomatoes for my breakfast for the last six or eight months I suppose um, and it's a lovely piece of seedy bread toast um, which we cut ourselves from the loaf, so it's a nice thick slice. 
it's not a sort of a spindly little slice that dries out before it toasts properly. So when you toast it, it's still moist in the middle. And I'd just like to pop the tomatoes into a hot oven with a little bit of olive oil on them and let the, sh the skins shrink. And then if they get a little bit of blackness on the top, which is caramelization, that adds to the flavor and it's absolutely delicious. And I cook them in the morning because I, I do that for me and Graham has scrambled eggs and stuff like that. And, and I just love those tomatoes on toast. That's all I have. I, you know, it's part of my five a day. In fact, it is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think it's an ingredient it would be hard to live without tomatoes yes. in, in yeah. your week because I agree with you that and especially doing what you're suggesting you just get the most amazing flavor it's yeah. just incredible yeah now you're obviously when it comes to your gardening led a little bit by growing uh, you know produce but I know you're you're just as enthusiastic about trees and the flower beds and your container planting so what has has worked in your garden this year well um the most exciting thing we did this year in lockdown was we planted two mature grapevines uh called red globe and I a lot of people get nervous about grapevines growing out in the open because because I always remember my grandmother who was a character very much like Granny Gray who had the most amazing grapevine it was grown outside the greenhouse and then went up into the greenhouse and she looked after it and it had the most fabulous grapes I have no idea what those grapes were and sadly the greenhouse and although my uncle still lives in the same house, the vine's long since gone. But I know my dad bought it as a graft from Catton Court, which was a house in Catton, long since pulled down, unfortunately, in the 60s when there were, you know, you could do that to an old building. Um, my parents lived in there with my aunt and uncle. Um, so I, we, I really wanted, because of this, grapevine that I remembered I really wanted to get a grapevine in and a grapevine's a great idea for creating a canopy that in the winter time is no longer there so you still get light come through it so that's that's been our project for lockdown project and we created a new um kind of like terrace under this and that's been fantastic the only thing, the only sad side of it was, is that I did get mildew. Yeah. And I wanted to look for an organic solution to that. And the one that I came up with, which did work, so the grapevine then started again, because you obviously get leaf damage and leaf drop, and you worry about the shoots not then growing the way you want them to grow, because obviously they're the, they become woody for the next year. I found that watered one, so if you watered milk down, whole milk, so one part milk to 10 parts water and sprayed it, that does work. Um, the only downside of it is doing the spraying because you do end up smelling disgusting <laughs> because however hard you try, you get covered in milk and then within an hour or so, you smell like this rancid creature. So whenever Vanessa, I was gonna do Vanessa, that. Yeah. I've got a little tip for you. If you use pure Jersey milk, it doesn't happen. Oh, that does was it? a lie, by the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> so sneaky. And I fell for it. <laughs> so did I. 
Well, anyway, that seems to work. But I hope next year I'm on to it earlier because I unfortunately just let it get too. And, and I don't know whether you found this in your garden, Alan. This year was not good for things like mildew. It was, um, I suppose, ideal conditions. It was very dry. I mean, I think that was the problem. We went for such a long time without rain and we had two periods. Um, appeared in early summer where we went for about six or seven weeks without rain and I mean the grass was completely brown in some parts of our garden then we had sort of a week of, of sort of not a huge amount of rain but just enough to turn the grass green and then what did we get another period of drought and that is the great enemy um, of plants that are susceptible to mildew because um, it encourages the spores to, to proliferate and to infect our plants so the only thing you can possibly do is maybe water your plants a little bit more as well. And I think as well as watering them um, at, the, at the root level, it helps to mist them as well, mist them with a spray of water as well. Yes, I'm gonna do that religiously next year, but you know, you live and learn, it's like everything, isn't it? You, know, you do live and learn, but you're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head with that one word, Ness, because it is doing it religiously. I mean, you know, some of these lovely, um, organic pesticides we have on the market today um, are very good, but they have to be done regularly and religiously. And if, if you don't do it as a regular, every, every two days or three days or something yeah. like that, it, they don't work. No, no, no. And you end up stinking of milk as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to hear about your terrace because I was following this on your Instagram stories during lockdown and you are very lucky that you and Les are both so handy, you're so capable and you have so much get up and go. I did feel very guilty though because I seem to be doing the, all the talking about what Les was doing. Sometimes he was doing it in the early part, we had really dry weather but then we had about a week of solid rain and that was when he was putting the posts in because he said the best thing to take the grapevine vines would be wire like they do in a vineyard a commercial vineyard so we had four posts put in and would you believe three posts went in um, absolutely with so much trauma because we really didn't know what was in the ground. We found the edge of a well, we found various <laughs> concrete obstructions under the ground um, and there was only one post that went in with no problems whatsoever. So um, it was a labour of love but it was also a great way of getting rid of an awful lot of rubbish, builders rubbish that we have stored at our house that's come from the hotel previously was in the barn that now operates as a sort of eating area. All that stuff came down to our house and it just drove me mad because, you know, what do you do with, you don't want to throw away York stone or old bricks, but you can't just have them, you know, just gradually getting bigger and bigger in your garden. So <laughs> I'm pleased to say we've used up quite a bit in this terrace. <laughs> was it nice? Because you're always so busy with the hotel. Um, when we talked to Tamara Bridge, the designer, back on episode five, obviously there'd been a lot of trauma around the Chelsea Flower Show being cancelled and all of her usual plans for May being derailed. But on the plus side, she got to turn her attentions to her own garden, spend some time with her husband. And did you feel a little bit like that once you got through the kind of grieving period over what was happening with the business to be able to yeah. spend some time with Les and maybe rework some parts of the garden was, was really nice? 
I think again, it was possibly, um, yeah, it was very scary because you, you know, suddenly your money, your your income has been stopped, and at some point you need to resolve paying staff because although you know we were giving given furlough, you don't know how long it was going to last at the time, so it was a big worry. But yes, I I suddenly thought to myself, I need to get a grip actually and do something because the worst outcome of this is if we arrive at the end of it and actually we haven't done anything other than just you know wring our hands and worry about it so then we really did get on with a you know great gusto and thought right we're just going to do as much as we can so i i did dig over half of a huge vegetable cottager which is not in the ideal spot in this garden. The previous people put it in and bless them. It looked beautiful when we came here, but it's in a frost pocket. So it never worked for vegetables and it's miles away from any water. So it wasn't practical. So I decided I was gonna dig half of that over or try and do the whole lot, but to dig it properly as Alan will know by hand, it was covered in brambles. Oh gosh. Uh, nettles, mare's tail, and round elder. Uh, so it was quite a labour of love, but it was very satisfying. And actually I got really close to my hens during that period of time because they started off being very sort of skittish and not coming near me. By the end, they were all under my feet waiting for the next worm. So it, I found that wonderful because I don't get enough of that time. So that's where a garden, you know, we're so lucky to have gardens. So yeah, I kind of, loved and almost felt resentful we were stopping <laughs> you know we got to go back to work but reality kicks in <laughs> so you dug over what had been this frost pocketed um potager what are your plans for that area so i dug in um les brought me lots and lots of bins of um compost from the hotel and i dug that in and before I walked away from it, it was pretty obvious there were things like courgettes and um, marrow plants coming up. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to leave them. I'm going to leave them because I know they will kind of crowd out the rest of the weeds. I've been weeding it. So we've got butternut squash, courgettes, marrows all <laughs> on the plot. Um, and what I'm going to do with it early spring, and I was going to ask you about this, Alan, is actually turn it into um, more of a wild meadow lawn, you know, with natural, naturalised plants, uh, wild flowers in it, because it's down in a part of the garden away from the house, which it would naturally then merge into the woodland, and it makes a lot more sense for it to be more wild. But obviously, I would be able to manage it by putting the mower over it perhaps once or twice a year. Vanessa, do you have, is it damp at all? It's damp. Well, you know what, you've got the ideal spot to have a buttercup meadow. Oh, really? Yeah, and I mean, if you, if you and think- And actually we do have buttercups down yeah, there. Yeah, if you think about it, you could have buttercups. Um, you could also, um, if I say cheat, I mean, you could actually improve your buttercups by having the double form of the buttercup. There is a double flowered form of our native buttercup, which you could use. 
Um, there's also a white or creamy white uh, form of the native buttercup you could use. And the other thing that occurs to me that you could use um, something called cuckoo pint, which I remember as a child used to grow on the water meadows, which has little sort of creamy, slightly mauvey white flowers um, in early, late spring, early summer. And of course, um, any number of dactylorhiza, they would perform there beautifully. And if yeah. you buy those as plugs or, or young plants and you just put them in amongst the grass in the damp bits, I mean, the, the rest is, is history. But there is a book by Christo Lloyd called Meadows, quite simply Meadows. Oh, okay. And Christo used to go away um, every year and driving on the continent. He went to various, various places um, and, you know, throughout Hungary, Czechoslovakia and all those sort of places. And he describes the meadows that he saw and what is growing in them. And the other thing I'm thinking of is, of course, the snake's head fritillaries. Ooh, they were yeah. wonderful in that meadow, um, yeah. both the white and the purple forms. Yeah. <laughs> Once you start thinking about what you can incorporate in a meadow, um, it's amazing what you'll discover because you'll, you'll, uh, your mind will have a natural progression and it will go on to saying, uh, to thinking, well, this is a very tough plant in the garden. It will withstand the, the vagaries of growing in grass or the competition that it gets from grass. And you can, you, you know, you soon you work it out like that and it means absolutely yeah. fabulous. Yes. Yes. Camassia, of course. Camassia. Yeah. Yeah. I need to take my time to think about how do this rather than just rushing out and you know and I realized there were certain things like certain seeds that needed the cold weather to, in order to germinate yeah I so I haven't sown anything yet because I'm waiting to just pull all these marrow and courgette plants off it why don't you explore the possibility of um um, inquiring to one of the big seed houses like Emma's Gate or um, Pictorial Meadows, one of those sort of places, um, and you could actually get a seed mixture for, for um, a dampish meadow. Yeah. Um, that would include all sorts of plants that I haven't mentioned, which are, um, in, which would look lovely in a, in a meadow. And then, you, of course, you can add to that by yourself over the years, you know, a, a group of bulbs of, such as Camassias or, as we said, Fritillaria meleagris, um, and plants like that, of that ilk, you can add to those as well. Um, and it just gets better year by year. And also yeah. you can add, you know, you can add plants that you particularly like. Anything that's growing in fairly dampish soil um, in the garden would, uh, and is big enough and robust enough would survive in a meadow. Oh, okay. That's a really good tip. Talking of, of tips, actually, to go back to this idea of stratification and the, the seeds that want that period of winter cold, I think anybody who goes through seed lists at this time of year, it's easy to order things or to think, well, oh, I'll order that next year and not realise that some of them might have germination um, you know, germination needs like that. So it's always worth reading the requirements. A lot of companies will have a specific bit. This is this is ha having learned <laughs> over years when I bought things and not noticed. Either so as soon as they arrive, or yes. you know, needs a period of cold, and then you get to it and you think, oh, why am I trying to sow this in spring? So yeah, uh, that's things you live and learn. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing: if you go to the seed um, uh, seed catalogue of Derry Watkins. It's Derry Watkins Special Plants. Uh, she has a nursery down in Bath and she has two seed catalogues and there's the one seed catalogue that you sow in spring and the others that seed catalogue which must be sown fresh. And that is the answer because it's got to get into the ground as soon as possible. And sometimes those don't germinate until the following spring because they need that period of stratification 
um, in the soil where they get that dampness and they get that coldness over our winter. Although, of course, I mean, I was thinking while Victoria, uh, Vanessa was um, talking about um, grapevines, now is a great time to think about growing grapes in this country because not only is the climate getting more and more amenable to, to growing grapes, it's also a great thing to have in your garden. And I think using them as a as a as a shade over your terrace is an absolutely lovely idea. I mean, it's a very continental idea, and one that we probably wouldn't even consider over over this side of the channel, if you like. But I think today, in, at least in the southern half of England, we can indeed consider that. Yeah, I I must admit, a, a friend of mine was house searching, and we visited an amazing house owned by a plantsman in Swatham. The doors from the cottage, from the main um, sort of living area, came straight out on, it's south facing, came straight out onto a terrace, it was elevated. And there was a climber over it. And I said, I thought, it looks like a grape. And I said to the gentleman, what, what actually is this? And he said, oh, it is a grape. And he said, in the summertime, it completely covers this area and gives us shade and it produces a lot of fruit. And it made me feel so happy to see how they'd set that up for a perfect living space. And I think there's so many ideas that you can gather from other people that just, you know, lift the spirit and give you, you know, you come back to your own garden uh, with all those ideas buzzing around in your head. You think, yeah, I could do that. Which is why garden visiting, I think is so important. You know, the, the things you see, the realization that you can grow things that perhaps you thought you couldn't grow. Um, I was saying to Thordis, I had really hoped to come over to yours in August, but unfortunately, because we've been so busy and I have literally been, it's back to the old days where I've been sort of working seven days a week. Oh dear. And which is not, hasn't been great. It's been, you know, tiring at times, but I'm pleased we're busy. But um, it, I miss that, you know, that interaction with seeing other people's gardens, visiting them and just seeing, you know, the progression, whether, it, whether you visit in the spring or the summer or the autumn, you just pick up those inspirational ideas, you know, um, especially I think if you're, you're very visual, Alan, you know, you're an artist and, um, those things stay in your head. Just talking of people visiting your garden, Alan, because I know, A, it's been incredibly busy since lockdown has allowed people to go and visit gardens. Again, going back yeah. to the idea of people feeling safe there in, in an open air environment. And I know that people are always very keen to ask you questions and to give you feedback. What are the, the plants that people have commented on most? Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> Numerous things. I did one little thing I did this year, which I and I put the pots out so that everybody could see them. And that was a trial of some new agapanthus. Well, new to me anyway. Um, and we got them for one of the foremost specialists in agapanthus. And I put them out. I think you've seen them with all these. Yeah. And there was one variety that stood out above all others um, because it produces increasingly more crops of buds, if you like. It doesn't have doesn't have a single flowering period. Um, it's called Poppin Purple. Poppin, as in P-O-P-P-I-N, and um, it is it has dark plummy coloured to purpley bluey flowers, um, which is which are very attractive. 
and it flowered first time in July and August. And I went and looked at it the other day and on my two plants, and they're only in eight inch pots. One has four, four new flower buds, the other five. So it does indeed have, have this possibility to keep on producing lots of flowers. Now this is a, an evergreen variety and most people will know if they grow agapanthus that evergreen varieties are less hardy than deciduous varieties. So the varieties that keep their leaves all the winter, you need to give them a little bit of shelter. Um, and I think this is well worth it. And the other thing that occurred to me is that if you start this into growth with a little bit of heat or even in a cold greenhouse, which warms up much quicker than outside in the open garden, if they're in there and they start into growth early and you put them out when they've got their first flower buds about, I don't know, 30 centimetres, 45 centimetres tall, just as they're about to open in, you put them out into your garden, you could possibly get three bouts of flower from a single plant. And that would be so much nicer because if you've only got a small garden and you want to grow agapanthus, they have a, a relatively, well, I say short flowering season, we'll say a month to be generous, give them a, a month season of interest. But if you've got a small garden and you buy pop in purple, and I'm sure there will be other varieties that have this trait because once they've once the plant breeders have got to grips with build, breeding their plants, they'll try and incorporate this um, feature into other varieties. If you've only got a small garden, that's the kind of plant you want. Now, Vanessa, have you brought some Flomo to the party? Uh, a plant that you've got a bit of fear of missing out about? This took me a lot to think about, you know. I think I have an awful lot of what I fancy at any time because... <laughs> You're, you're restricted by what you can grow, aren't you? For sure. But the one thing I really, really, really love, which I have tried unsuccessfully to grow here um, because of climate conditions, I have tried growing it inside. Thank you. <laughs> My husband's just bought me coffee. Oh, It's Bougainvillea. Which what? Bougainvillea. Oh, goodness. Probably not too exotic a plant for you to kind of think that I want to grow. But I love Bougainvillea. And I don't know whether it's because it just evokes, you know, being on a Greek key or, you know, in parts of the Mediterranean you love because it's very prevalent in that Mediterranean bowl. Although, again, it's another plant that was brought back from by the explorers and the, the plant the you know the botanists from the 18th century yeah but i really wish i'm sure you have bougainvillea in one of your um, greenhouses don't you do you have it in your orangery that's what i think you, you remember seeing it yesterday yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i went to play with the puppies and spent about as much time admiring your house plants <laughs> yeah <laughs> vanessa she said that's thought he said to me you do houseplants on a big scale, don't you? <laughs> Another Did you level. Think on a big scale. <laughs> Sitting in the middle of this table is the most enormous bougainvillea. It's probably about, I don't know, four feet tall, I guess, and maybe three or four feet across. And I said, yeah, it's very nice, but it's rather difficult when you're trying to eat your breakfast at the table. <laughs> it gets in the way. Have it in the house. Yes. Wow. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> You see, you, you are an artist. You are a gardener artist, Alan. <laughs> well, sure. I, I don't like small things, you know. I'm no. not into my nutia of life, like no. um, those little tiny plants called living stones or lithrops and things like no. that. So, I mean, I no. do like a plant with a bit of character. And I, and I love dogs that are naughty, for instance, because that shows characterfulness, I think. Yeah. <laughs> 
I have to say that because you can probably hear mine playing in the background and it well, sounds like they're going to kill each other, but I'm sure they're not. I've just got a cat that's just joined me. Oh, yes! Oh, yes. <laughs> Listening to everyone. I just walked across the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if we get cut off, it's the cat. <laughs> I mean, Bougainvillea, that is... I, I wish I could have that in my house. It, what a statement plant. What a thing to just add vavavoom to a house. <laughs> I have tried growing it in a small glass lean-to that we have, but it, it, it was neglected. They like to be very dry, don't they, Alan? They don't like to be overwatered. I suspect I overwatered it. You probably might have done, because they, um, during the growing season, um, they like... They're like any other plant, they'll, they'll drink copious quantities of water. Um, and if you, if you don't water them enough, of course, all those beautiful bracts, because it's yes. the bracts that show the colour, not the flowers. The flowers no. are the things within the bracts, but those beautiful bracts will drop. But if you want to keep them in good condition, I mean, you've got, it's that old adage that confuses so many people, a moist but well-drained compost. When the sun's shining, I'm watering mine every other day. Um, if it's if it's a dull day, like it's a dull day today, I suppose I water it about once every five days. But you've got so many children to think about. How do you do it? How do you balance it in your head? All those things dependent on your care. I don't know how you do well, it. I don't think about it, to be quite <laughs> honest. I just do it. I mean, I, I mean, it's like watering, you know, it's like watering a greenhouse. I've got a bench in the greenhouse, which is entirely precious to me and it can it it has lots of plants growing in it that you won't find easily i mean they're, they're things i've acquired over the years um and lots of them are, are bulbous plants and they're winter growers so they come probably from places like south africa um and being winter growers that's when they want the water and they don't want water in the summer so in the summer they like to go to sleep and they like to be well ripened and my one way of dealing with that is to turn the pots on their side yeah. So you can't water them and you face the bulbs towards the sun so they get a jolly good baking. And this is what keeps them healthy and makes them flower. Um, but it's just understanding the plant's needs, really. And if you've got, I mean, I've got a crinum that likes to be dry in the, in the winter, but in the summer it, it grows naturally in very boggy soil. So it, it lives in a deep saucer of water in its pot. So it's almost yeah. as if it's got, you know, that boggy con those boggy conditions. Yeah, yeah. Just understanding that that's all it is uh, yeah, yeah i think you you get to know i mean i i love house plants they're everywhere around me as you can see <laughs> and i get you kind of get to know some of them are easier i mean obviously at the devil's ivy you'd be hard even i would be hard pressed to kill it but then i've got over here i fell for and you'll see why this caladium but i, ha I haven't figured out yet how to make it happy well i tell you how to make it happy you need to give it more heat yeah Caladiums actually do, they actually do, I mean, there's some tremendously coloured leaves, big, big pink and green leaves and red and green leaves, as well as the, your lovely smart white and green leaf form, but they do like an awful lot of heat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the thing that, that they, appeals to them. I remember growing tuberoses, which we used to get bulbs of, um, and I found them very difficult. They all seem to get red spider mite because... They just attract red spider. I don't know why they do, but they, if you've got red spider anywhere, it'll go on your tuberoses. But the scent is the wonderful thing. Until um, when I did eventually get them to flower, I found the scent completely overpowering and horrid. Uh, it really was like cheap, sort of, <laughs> you know, a cheap handbag smell. <laughs> Horrible. Yeah. And, 
So I gave up with them. I mean, they didn't grow well for me, so I just gave up with them. I suppose some things you just have to realise you that they don't work for you or they don't like your house. I mean, I, I often with plants, it's just about finding the spot in your house where they're happy, where they get the right amount of light or the right amount of heat or whatever it might be. And I suppose sometimes you might just not have that situation, a bit like in your garden. Yeah. Well, it is, you see, because, I mean, if you think back to all the plants that Granny Gray grew in her house, they were all plants that tolerated a room without central heating, which they loved. I mean, they'd go into semi-dormancy and they, and, and I mean, her cyclamen, she could have a florist cyclamen and which she kept going from year to year. And I'm doing the same thing today, but I've yet to reach her cyclamen. The size of the corms were about six inches across and they produced over a hundred flowers each late winter. I mean, they started to flower just after Christmas. Nowadays, if you go to the shops today, you'll find cyclamen for sale uh, as houseplants in August. Well, to me, that's the wrong season because they are a winter growing thing. Um, yeah. And I love them, but I don't like them out of season. Um, but Granny Gray managed to grow these superb plants. And I think it was because she had the right growing conditions at not too hot. Most of our houses today are too hot and too dry and houseplants don't like either of those things, unless they are caladiums, of course. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my house is clearly not warm enough for my caladium at the moment. Um, so your Flomo is Bougainvillea. Mine is slightly less tropical, um, slightly more down to earth, but um, I, I've got, I've got a lovely Hebe from you actually, Alan, which is, is great in my garden, but I think I need more Hebes in my life. And I saw one in a magazine recently, which was called Pascal. And, and the caption said that in winter, it has vibrant burgundy leaves and then in summer pale blue flowers. Now, I don't know whether the flowers are so inconspicuous that in summer it doesn't hold its own in the garden, but the photo of it, of it in its, its winter vibrant burgundy was really quite the eye catcher. So based on that picture, I haven't done enough research about it, but that made me go, oh, yes, I want one of those. Yeah, I think it is important. One thing it is important to say to everybody is that... Um, pictures are designed to sell and there's been an awful lot of talk about photoshopping and and you know adjustments shall we say to photographs especially of younger people um so they you know they may not be as perfect as they look on the screen when they've had their waist sucked in by three inches and they're, you know, the top half bulged out and their eyes remade up and that you know the cheeks get slimmed down and all the rest of it. so you're not looking at the real person anymore and i think that's a shame but the same thing happens when people are trying to sell plants and they you know they they enhance what they want to enhance and they they you know slowly pull back on what they don't want you to see or know um so i think it is well worth doing your research and finding out um what these plants are like do you have any hebes either of you but i suppose alan in particular is the the grower of all the plants any hebes that would tick that that kind of winter box of, of bringing a bit of luster to the border in winter there's a whole range of hebes that have colourful foliage. If you actually look at the various kinds of hebes there are, um, there's a lovely one called Pewter Dome. And Pewter Dome, it looks almost like a ro ro little fat rotund conifer. It's got very tiny sort of leaves in um, uh, along the stems, but it is this lovely coloured colour of grey. And it, in really cold weather, which we don't seem to get anymore, those leaves get a little, little red edge to them. So, I mean, they get the pewter and red edge um, in fact, there's a hebe called red edge as well, which has red edges to its leaves. There's a huge, huge number. I mean, if quite interesting, if you go to, if you go to, a, shall we say somewhere like Cambridge, Cambridge Botanic Garden, 
Um, you will see hebes used there in the botanic garden, which are probably not for their flowers, but for their foliage, because they give that piece of interest in, in the winter, which is, I mean, it's lovely to have a little bit of structure in your garden in the winter and not look at bare soil, isn't it? And anybody who is looking for winter interest, the botanics have a wonderful, well, they have a scent garden. If you're looking for that, they have a winter interest garden as well. I mean, loads of different things. It is a wonderful place to visit. But yeah, that, that winter one for, for both scent and for, for foliage and flower at that time of year is, uh, is a real inspiration. We had a chap in the garden the other day who works at the, at the, in the winter garden at Cambridge Botanic Gardens. And uh, he said, I can't believe this. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm walking around your garden here and I thought I knew about plants, but there are so many plants that I don't know about. So we then spent the next half an hour going through his camera uh, so that I could identify the plants that he'd seen growing in here, which is something that's a little bit of um, rather nice, isn't it? The fact that, that I'm growing things that um, a trained horticulturist has not seen before. Yeah. It's not in the, in the winter garden, I know, but I mean, in general, he has a huge interest in plants. Um, and I think he's going to have a season ticket next year because he said <laughs> there's so much to see here. And it's only a short train ride, isn't it? 60, yeah. uh, 60, it's about an hour from Cambridge to Norwich. Now, Alan, what's your FLOMO? Well, my FLOMO is an easy FLOMO and anyone can get this FLOMO. Um, it's a parrot tulip. Um, and it's a parrot tulip called Rasta Parrot. Uh, it's the kind of one of those very flamboyant, well, parrot tulips, first of all, they're very flamboyant. They're very large flowers and they have kind of curled and crinkled edges to the petals with splits in them as well. Um, and they are often in more than one shade. So you'll get orange with purple blends. It sounds peculiar, but it's absolutely fabulous. And Rasta Parrot is a new one in my catalogue and it's got flowers that are green, orange, red, and yellow. Um, and they're just the, the colours are flamed all the way up the petals until you get to a red end and edge of the petal. And I just think they are fantastic. They're like sort of unique creations almost. So Rasta Parrot is my Flomo and I'm just about to order some. Oh, wow. I can imagine you doing some, um, some good tulips in containers, Vanessa. Um, well, I was just gonna ask Alan, do you take your tulips up every year or not? No, I don't. I mean, I buy my, my bulbs, my tulip bulbs. Whole, and <clears throat> um, I can imagine that would be a long job to take them all up. It would be. It, it would be. I mean, it's not labour. Um, it's too labour intensive for me to attempt to do that. So what I tend to do is we dig them up and we shove them into sacks and I give them to the local schools or the WI or anybody else that wants them. If they think they can use, use them or get money for them or whatever, then let's please take them away because that it suits me down to the ground. Because tulips, if, if you try and dig them up when they're still green, which is yeah. what I would have to do, they're very brittle. So you break the stems off the leaves and you really need to allow that green stem to die down so the goodness goes back into the bulb for, for following years. Um, and so, it, you know, if you want to lift them, it's really only better to lift them after they finish flowering, by which time the tops are dead and they've gone anyway. So you don't need to. But no. some tulips, some tulips, uh, well, more, more, more often than not, tulips don't get the baking that they really want in our country. They probably would have done this summer, but they don't normally get it. They like to be um, really baked and, and in a very hot, dry soil for a period of about six weeks during the summer. And that initiates flowering for the following year. And if they don't get that, I mean, I don't want to generalize too much because there'll always be some tulips growing in a shady corner of somebody's garden that flowers every year and they get going, yeah, my flower every year. Well, <laughs> you know, that's, 
some plants do and some plants don't. But in general, tulips, um, they don't tend to be permanent planting. They tend to go downhill after a few years, yeah. especially hybrid tulips, which, um, you know, the, which are the kind of things that I'm talking about. And parrot tulips um, and all the tulips that we get are grown in bulb fields, uh, grown in bulb fields in places like Holland and Belgium under specialised conditions. Um, if you go to the uh, bulb fields and you see hyacinths, you'll probably be surprised to see them hyacinth fields being watered nearly every day. And you think, well, why do they do that? Well, there's a method to their madness and they're trying to get as big a bulb as they possibly can to sell to us, which we then put in our gardens. And the first year, if you buy a, a hyacinth bulb, for instance, that's um, that you can usually get them in two, you know, three sizes. There's one, two, and three. One being the largest size bulb, which will produce the largest size flowering spike. Now, in a hyacinth, I think this is a disadvantage because that spike will be too heavy to hold its head up and it will flop over and, you know, lay with its head in the soil in the garden. So I always buy the smaller size bulbs, which the bigger bulbs will very soon revert to in the garden anyway. Um, and they will carry on for then for years. Hyacinths are quite good garden plants. Um, I remember Christopher Lloyd writing about um, some hyacinths that his mother had in a bowl. Um, and it was 33 years ago that she planted them in the garden and they still appeared every year, but much finer spikes than they were when they were first grown in that bowl. Wow. Yeah. 33 years. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you buy something, something like multiflora hyacinths, um, you get a huge grape bulb with lots of little bulbs attached to the, like the mother bulb around it. And you might get as many as between 20 and 40 flower spikes from that one bulb. But they're much finer. You, you know, they've got, I don't know, as anything between seven and 20 bells per stem. Um, but they're much more graceful and finer. And they look more ga garden worthy than the big fat jumbo hybrids. <laughs> Now, before we have to wrap things up, let's fit in a couple of questions. One of them came from Sid, who emailed in to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk, attached to photos, which were all a couple of photos. We're always grateful uh, for those to help us get to the bottom of the problem. His um, problem was with his water lilies, two separate plants which had clumped together and detached themselves from the bottom of the pond and were uh, kind of a floating island. He was worried they might be about to um, declare independence and secede from the Union. But on a serious point, he uh, he wondered whether or not they would send themselves back down for the winter or whether they were now going to be vulnerable if the pond froze. And they've been there for about 10 or more years and he's never seen this happen before. So, Alan, what, what well, should Sid do? I mean, we, we have got exactly the same thing in one of our ponds where the this huge great rhizome, because... Water lilies make a, a long rhizome and they root from anywhere along this rhizome and they make this huge rhizome and eventually it detaches itself from the soil and it floats up to the top of the pond and it lays on the surface of the pond like some great snake, um, some great scaly snake. Um, and you really, what, what you've got to do is get that rhizome out of the pond and chop it up into pieces. Um, that would be my solution to the problem. I then plant those pieces into um, um, a pot, some kind of plastic pot or even a water lily basket, depending on the size of the pond. Uh, I mean, a water lily basket is probably big enough for most people. But in one of my large ponds, I use large shallow pots. But I put wire around this the pot over the rhizome to make sure that the rhizome stays where it's, it's supposed to be. The other thing you could try doing if it's a, if the pond isn't too big, you could, and if it's got um, mud and, and silt in the bottom of the um, pot, you could buy a roll of builder's lead, which you can get in various ways 
weights. And what you do is you chop a piece of the lead off that you can cut it very easily with secateurs. It's very soft metal. And you wrap that around the rhizome until it's heavy enough to keep it submerged. That's just a little thing that I've done on several occasions. <laughs> but quite often, if you've got a large rhizome that's risen to the top, I mean, you probably get between seven and 15 plants from that one rhizome because you can chop it up into sections. And if each section has got two or three buds, which you can see at this time of the year, and you just plant them. And I mean, if you want to keep them for next year and you just plant them in a, in a, in a tub or a tub of water, I've got lots of those black tubs around the garden, which we use for storing water in, which are um, header tanks in, in people's roofs. They're made of a heavy duty plastic today, but they make ideal um, uh, you know, receptacles for water in the garden. Sticking with rhizomes, our next question is from Richard, who's been watching your very popular uh, iris video about how to divide irises and um, which we'll put a link to so people can go find that and um, he got some iris rhizomes from his brother uh, brother but had to then go into hospital and they got left in a plastic bag for about six weeks he's now gone back to them and they're all mildewed so can he still plant them or are they no good now Oh, never give up. I mean, always have to take the optimistic attitude. Um, if if you, I think the first thing to do is to take them out of the plastic bag and let them dry, um, and that mildew will gradually disappear. Um, if you can then take a good old stiff paintbrush, not one that you're going to use anymore, an old paintbrush, and brush as much of that mildew off as you possibly can. And and if the tubers, uh, the rhizomes, if the rhizomes are showing any sign of rot, I would cut the rotten pieces out and leave them to dry for about four or five days uh, so the cuts callous over and then plant them. Plant the good bits, but get rid of the bad bits. Top tip, tip of the yeah, week. Top. <laughs> tip of the week. <laughs> this week. <laughs> Thank you, Vanessa, for coming and joining us for a spot of Talking Dirty. It's been lovely to see your, your face. It's so good to see both of you. <laughs> see you soon, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Happy gardening all. Happy gardening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.